As Hurricane Dorian recently made its way across Florida, I saw how life can just stop in the face of a natural disaster. Gas stations closed after fuel runs. Supermarkets ran out of bread and milk. Home supply stores sold out of plywood. People just shifted into survival mode when survival was at stake. So when natural disasters have struck, how has baseball responded? We'll look at some examples throughout history on today's episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. I am your host, Jeff Lambert. Well, I have to start off by offering some apologies for my absence. I went four for four in July, felt the the wind at my back, everything was going great, and then August was just, forget it. And we're into September now, too. It's been six weeks since the last episode, and that is just unacceptable, and I apologize. Uh, you know, some things happened. We ended up moving to a new place, which is great. Um, we also had Hurricane Dorian roll through Florida, which was an interesting experience. My first hurricane, even though where we're located in South Florida, it didn't do much. Uh, Central Florida got the worst of it, but it was still an interesting experience nonetheless. And then had a couple uh, travel engagements that took me away here and there. Combining all those together, you know, it just uh, got away from me. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that I missed a big milestone because August was the one-year anniversary for this podcast. And so I've decided that today is going to be the one-year anniversary episode. This will mark 12 months since this podcast started. And just real quick to recap, on August 10th of last year, I started this podcast. It was an episode entitled The Origins of Baseball. I had just moved to Florida from Massachusetts. I had left a 12-year job. I found myself playing the stay-at-home dad in a new place where I didn't know many people. And this podcast was kind of my way to be able to stay productive and to do something for me. Since that time, I've been able to research some just amazing topics. And I've learned a new skill in podcasting. And I've met some really awesome people since that time. So where we are today, this show has grown to 23 episodes, including this one. The show has been listened to over 9,000 times, and we now have a per-episode audience of more than 500 people. I look over the past 12 months, and the journey has just been amazing, and I can't say thank you enough for each and every listener I have. Every single one of you, you're the best. I appreciate the emails, the messages on social media, the comments. It's been great getting to know each of you, and I'm really enjoying this, and I continue to keep doing it. So here's to another year of baseball for all of us to enjoy. And with that, just one more thing before we get into the episode. We do have a new sponsor for the podcast, and that is a company called Risen Inbound. Risen Inbound is a marketing firm in Miami that's focused on helping businesses grow and reach today's 21st century customer. Risen works with companies across the globe, from local startups to international corporations, and they're always focused on trying to build meaningful relationships with both potential and returning customers. 
So if you're looking for an experienced, friendly, and results-driven team to help you, check out Risen by going to GoRisen.com. That's Risen with a Z. You can also follow them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for the username Risen Inbound. That's one word, Risen Inbound. Again, thank you for tuning in to today's show, everybody. And I'm looking forward to our topic today, which is natural disasters in baseball history. Natural disasters have made some interesting interruptions to America's pastime over the years. While most documented incidents have occurred in the past 50 years or so, thanks to mass media, whether it's rain, snow, tornadoes, hurricanes, or even bugs, Mother Nature hasn't spared baseball from her wrath. So I've decided that we're going to look at five events, each of them in chronological order. I found so many examples of how the weather interrupted games throughout MLB history, I tried to narrow the focus to events that actually impacted the outcome of a game. There have certainly been other things that have happened that have either um, delayed starts or um, just been natural um, annoyances for fans and players. But the ones that we're going to talk about today actually uh, impacted the outcome in some way, shape, or form. I even went through and found some game clips, some audio clips that you can hear from some of these games just to give you a feel of what it must have been like to be there and watch some of these events unfold. So without further ado, let's get started. We are going to travel to Houston, Texas for our first incident. This occurred in 1976. The Houston Astros were enjoying the benefits of playing in a new state-of-the-art arena known as the Astrodome. It was about 10 years since the unveiling of this arena, and the marvel was big for the time. It featured a dome, which was sorely needed, as the Astros suffered frequent rainouts in their last outdoor stadium. The stadium also had the league's first animated scoreboard, which was nicknamed the Astrolite. Good name. It was also one of the first stadiums to use air conditioning as well. In fact, to make sure the airflow from the air conditioners didn't have a negative impact on breaking balls, Satchel Page, the great Satchel Page, came before the season started in full Astros uniform, and he threw out the first pitches in the Astrodome before the start of that season. He stated uh, that the new stadium was, quote, a pitcher's paradise, end quote, because the lack of wind allowed for sensitive pitches to maneuver more easily. So going into this game about a decade after its opening, the Astrodome was supposed to be this rainproof arena where this kind of stuff didn't happen. And they were so confident in that fact that the Astros actually stopped the practice of printing rainout reschedule dates on their tickets, which was used to guarantee fans re-entry if a game was canceled due to weather. That's how confident they were. So let's fast forward to 1976 and talk about what happened. So the stadium was being enjoyed by the Astros. It was considered a modern marvel for baseball stadiums at the time. And so this leads into a scheduled game between the Houston Astros and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now on the day of the game, 
there was this powerful thunderstorm that just rocked the Houston area. And it started pouring a little bit after noontime. The players had arrived early for practice. They got there a little bit before 1 o'clock, so they got there when the rain started, but uh, they didn't realize how bad things got so quickly. They were in the stadium. They were in a dome. It wasn't easy for them to look outside and see these things. So the game was scheduled to start at 7. So it started raining a little bit after noon, and it just got worse as the afternoon went on. The streets got flooded, and access to the arena almost became impossible. There were about 20 fans that braved the elements and just through waist-deep water were able to get to the stadium with their tickets, and they went inside to watch the game. So you have about 20 fans. You have both teams who have gone through batting practice. They're ready to go, but uh, they're missing some other elements that makes a baseball game go. But before we go into that, uh, Astros team historian Mike Acosta, he looked back on the incident in a publication, and this is what he had to say. He said, quote, It was like a tropical storm. It was raining so hard, and it just kept coming down. It got to the point where the streets around the Astrodome were flooded and impassable. Fans couldn't even get to the stadium. Neither could Astrodome workers. Remember, the Astrodome floor was 45 feet below ground level, so the lower ramps and entries were also flooded too. The Astros' general manager at the time, Tal Smith, he said, quote, It was an absolute downpour. There was flooding all over, and people were just marooned. Houston has a low water table. We're not that far above ground, a marshy area, and when we get torrential downpours, we have flooding. End quote. So this was the situation that Houston found itself in as the afternoon went on. The players were there, about 20 fans were there, and the umpires were not. It took them several hours just to be able to get through all of the rain and all of the flooding to the stadium. And I have to give them credit for even showing up in the first place. So they got to the stadium about four o'clock. So three hours after the players were there for BP. And between about four into five o'clock, the umpires knew, like, we, we can't have a game. Fans can't get here. It's a, it's a rapidly worsening situation. We don't even know how we're going to leave the stadium. So they started talking amongst each other. They talked to the team managers. They contacted the MLB administration. And about five o'clock, a little after five o'clock, with only those 20 fans in the stands, the umpires made the decision to call the game off. Now, the umpires knew how bad it was, but like I said, the players didn't really understand the situation that they were in. This wasn't just a regular rainout. The the point when the players really realized something was going on was that water started to pour in through uh, the outfield near where the roof was and started cascading onto that outfield scoreboard. And that's when it started to click like, oh, we may be in a tough situation right now. But what can they do? They're stuck. The game's canceled, but they had to wait out the storm. So, you know, I have to give credit. The Astrodome employees and and ownership thought, you know, quick about it and said, well, we have to kill a couple hours. So to wait out the storm, Astrodome employees that had made it to the game, they brought some tables out onto the field and they set them up by second base and they invited both teams to come out of the dugout and to have dinner together. The 20 or so fans that were in the stands that braved the elements, they were also invited to come down onto the field and eat with the players and 
and the coaches right there on second base. That's that's awesome. So the Astrodome served everybody there in attendance. Everybody got a steak dinner, and there was tons of alcohol <laughs> from players' um, um, recollections of the time. So they had a good evening. Uh, stadium employees that helped put together this this event, they also ate with the players and the fans, and everybody just ate, drank, and made merry for that evening as the rain just pummeled Houston uh, on the outside of the stadium. So going back to Astros historian Mike Acosta, he wrote that, uh, quote, just to, to back this up, quote, tables were brought onto the field and the teams ate dinner. The players were still in their uniforms, but some of them were wearing shower flip-flops on their feet. The Astrodome staff ate with the players as well, end quote. Now, there's even a story that after the meal, with a good amount of alcohol in them, some of the Astros players decided to climb to the top of the dome and crawl on the catwalk. Probably not the safest thing to do in the middle of a natural disaster, but there you have it. So fast forward to about 8 o'clock at night. Um, The meal's over. Everybody's ate and drank their fill. Um, They have to decide what they're going to do, each and every person. The the rain wasn't really letting up. It wasn't as bad as it was during the afternoon time, but you had flooding. So plans, uh, excuse me, plans, players, fans, and employees, they, they all had to make their way home or to their hotels as best as they could. So some players went down to the garage and tried to get to their cars, and some of the cars were flooded. They wouldn't even turn on. So they had to carpool with some of the other players whose cars were able to to be uh, in a position to be able to get through the flooded streets. So some players got out that way. Some players decided it wasn't worth it, that they didn't want to go through the flooded streets, and they actually slept in the Astrodome overnight. Um, The ownership gave access to the luxury suites so players could go in and sleep in there. And some fans even reportedly decided to wait it out, and they slept in the stands that night. So the next morning rolled around, and the players and the fans that stayed overnight in the stadium got up, and they went to their cars or whatever transportation they had available to make their way back to where they needed to be. Uh, Astros second baseman Rob Andrews was quoted as saying after he left the stadium that morning, quote, the drive home was surreal. No one was on the roads. As I got on the interstate by the dome, I had to weave through abandoned cars left and right where they stalled the night before. I couldn't shake the feeling I was in some kind of world-ending disaster flick. End quote. Now, I guess the irony in all this, you know, with the rain coming in and the decision to keep the game going, it was canceled. And they had to make up the game anyways. So uh, in July, the Astros traveled to Pittsburgh to be able to make up that lost game. Now, when all was said and done after the rains disappeared, just to put into context how bad that storm was that hit Houston, it was reported that in that area, in downtown Houston, that they got over 10 inches of rain in less than a 24-hour period. That is a lot of water. So that is our first natural disaster that we see affecting the outcome of a game. Now, let's travel north. We started in the south with Texas. Now we go to, oh, Canada, Toronto, 1977. So, 1977 is the year that the Blue Jays came into existence in terms of their entry into the MLB. 
and they were set to play their inaugural home opener, the first franchise game at Exhibition Stadium, which sounds like a real dump of a stadium from what I read. Toronto fans, if you uh, ever went to Exhibition Stadium and you have a good story, I'd love to hear it. Send me an email. Now, this was before the Rogers Center was built, the one we're all familiar with, that nice indoor domed stadium. Exhibition Stadium was not like that. This was an outdoor stadium, and it was built for football. So, fast forward to April. It is the uh, inaugural franchise game for the Blue Jays. Toronto residents are excited. The Chicago White Sox are coming to town to play them for that game. And Toronto residents woke up to a pretty chilly morning in April, even by Canada's standards. It was cold, almost too cold for a baseball game. And as the morning went on, snow started to fall. So what are they going to do? It's opening day. Do you postpone that? So the MLB commissioner and the president of the American League, they were both in town to watch this game. So they got together with team ownership, and the decision was made, let's play ball, and we'll keep an eye on the weather if it gets worse, as if almost freezing temperatures and snow on the ground wasn't enough. But that didn't stop Toronto fans. No, no. 44,649 fans showed up in winter gear to watch their newly minted Blue Jays take on the Chicago White Sox. Now, I just want to revisit this again. Not only is the weather horrible, Exhibition Stadium was not a baseball stadium. It was an old football stadium that was converted for baseball. Not only was it old, it had really bad drainage. There were no seats in the ballpark. There were benches, aluminum benches. And the the covered seats, the only covered seats that were there, were in the end zones. And if you sat there, you could barely see any of the action. So the MLB knew that the stadium was not going to help the situation at hand. So they did the best they could. They told the groundskeepers to be ready to be able to get snow off the field and to do whatever they could to prevent the freezing. And uh, to give them credit, they did that. So their job was to keep the field playable. And so they took the necessary steps. Uh, To give you an example, at game time, there was a dusting of snow on the field. So the umpires decided to start the game. The grounds crew actually borrowed a Zamboni from a local hockey rink to be able to go through and clean off the infield, which is a stroke of genius, which they did. Uh, the players had expressed some concern, uh, which is uh, completely, you know, within their right to do. I mean, we're talking about very slippery conditions, uh, very cold weather to have to play in outdoors. This is something baseball players are not used to doing. But the fans were there. They were excited. They didn't care. They were excited to see their new team play ball. Just to give you an example of maybe the mindset uh, during this time, a former Blue Jays owner and owner at the time, Paul Beeston, recounted the day in a publication saying, quote, fans were excited to be there. They didn't care. It was an experience. It was fun. There was this feeling of happiness and let's see what we've got there. You can only do that once. You can only be at that first game once, and that was it. And they were going to be there. The weather didn't seem to impede anybody from enjoying themselves. End quote. So like I said, as the game went on, the grounds crew kept having to battle with the weather to make the field playable. That Zamboni machine was out on the field, and 
I think I misspoke earlier. I said they borrowed it from a local hockey rink. They actually borrowed the Toronto Maple Leafs official Zamboni to use during the game. So they brought in the big guns for this. So they focus mainly on keeping the snow off the infield. If you were in the outfield, though, uh, tough luck. Uh, There was snow on the grass for pretty much the entire game. And it was just left that way. So believe it or not, with snow on the ground, with temperatures the way they were, the game was played to nine innings. It was it was a complete game. And it ended as any inaugural match should, honestly. The Toronto Blue Jays won by a score of nine to five. And again, just to give you a chance to kind of sit in that uh, stadium at the time and kind of soak in what it's like to be in a, a winter storm baseball game. I'm going to play for you a few moments from the broadcast booth to get you a feel for what people saw and heard during that time. Take a listen. The Blue Jays, as we mentioned, playing a charter member of the American League back in 1901. The Chicago White Sox played the very first game uh, in the American League. Now they're going to introduce the starting lineups. The 48th Highlanders marching on in the left field area. And uh, we'll have some activities underway now. It looks as though they're going to give it a real try to get this ball game underway. The snow is certainly... Uh, eased up considerably. It's just the white stuff on the field that's the problem. Let's see how well they do. The first man coming up is Ralph Gar, the left fielder for the White Sox. As Canada's sole baseball team, the Blue Jays now play, today, under the safety of a dome, the Rogers Center. And that means it's probably unlikely that we're going to see a repeat of a snow game, at least in Canada at this point, for Toronto. Although my Red Sox have come close a few times with some cold games for opening days. And, you know, with weather patterns shifting, we may see some some more snow games in the future. But for now, I think Toronto is safe. So there's our second natural disaster that occurred uh, that impacted a game's ability to be played. Now let's go to the one that I think pretty much every baseball fan is familiar with, but I I can't help but include it. And that is uh, going to San Francisco. The year is 1989, and it was Game 3 of the 1989 World Series, which was played between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland Athletics. And this series was known as the Battle of the Bay, or the Bay Bridge Series. It was the first crosstown series between two teams in a same metro area since 1956. People were excited for this series. I mean, sold-out crowds anyways for World Series events, but people were excited for this. and So the Athletics found themselves in a tough situation. San Francisco was up two games to none, and it was a must-win game for the A's. So here we are in Game 3. It's just minutes before the game starts. Both teams are there. They went through BP. Lineup cards had been turned in. Um, the TV announcers, the, the TV broadcasts had begun. And right before that first pitch, there was a rumbling. And a magnitude 6.9 earthquake struck that crowded stadium and in full force. This earthquake that happened, it was known as the Loma Prieta earthquake. And it caused significant damage to both Oakland and San Francisco. Now, during this time, uh, the Giants played in Candlestick Park which was showing its age at that time. It was not a new stadium. It's actually been torn down since. It doesn't doesn't exist anymore. But um, the earthquake caused enough of a tremor 
where we actually saw the upper deck start to rain chunks of concrete down on fans below. The power went out completely in the stadium. Just imagine this. You're there for a World Series game. You have concrete starting to fall on your head. The lights go out. That must have been terrifying for anybody in attendance. I, I cannot imagine. And again, if you were at that game or if you know anybody, someone that did and you have a cool story, send it to me and I'll mention it on a future episode. I'd love to hear about it. So, you know, with with all this happening, people just went nuts. They didn't know what to do. And rightfully so. I don't know what I would have done. So... Basically what happened is once the the quake started, players from both teams rushed out onto the middle of the field. Police just instinctively formed a ring around the field to keep fans in the stands. And, you know, as the minutes went on and panic started to set in, the players started waving their families out of the stands onto the field so they could be together. So after about 90 minutes of just trying to figure out what to do next and everybody in a real chaotic state, uh, Candlestick Park officials ordered everybody to leave the stadium in case there were any aftershocks that were coming. And, of course, that would cause further damage to the stadium and cause further injury. I mean, you already have concrete chunks falling. (laughs) Uh, You don't want one of those upper decks to go and, and kill a bunch of people. So players made their way outside, fans made their way outside, everybody was just every person for themselves, basically. And it was chaos outside Candlestick. There were fans that, of course, (laughs) decided to capitalize on the situation, and there's reports that people went outside with chunks of the concrete that had fallen, and they were trying to sell them right there on the street, you know, uh, trying to hawk off these new pieces of memorabilia to hand down to your grandkids. Uh... Players ran to their cars with their families. Oh, I forgot to mention, too, those chunks of concrete that fans were trying to sell in the streets, there were reports that people were trying to sell them for up to $500. Keep in mind, that's $1989, $500, so it's <laughs> a lot of money. But you have players running to their cars with fans. They're trying to get to safety with their families. There were several reports after the event that players were, you know, just like everybody else, um, stopping and getting food or gas. There was a report that uh, Jose Canseco was seen at a nearby gas station pumping gas with his family in the car, and he was still in full uniform. So that hopefully kind of captures the chaos that happened that day. I mean, talk about a scary situation. Umpire Al Clark, who was slated to run that game, he was quoted after saying that, quote, we didn't know what it was at first. When I realized, I got scared as hell. I don't know if I've ever been that scared. When I saw the wall shaking, I ran out onto the field. It was just unbelievable. Let's put this in perspective. How important is Game 3 right now? End quote. Again, let's just tune in to listen to the reaction from the game. We actually, you know, we obviously have a broadcast audio that we can look at. It was Al Michaels and Tim McCarver that were calling the game that day. So... Let's just listen to a quick clip of their reaction when the quake struck. Second base, so the Oakland A's take. Take. I'll tell you what, we're having a nerve. Yeah. 
but we are. Well, folks, that's the greatest open in the history of television, bar none. <laughs> yes, it certainly did. <laughs> We're still here. <laughs> we are still, as we can tell, on the air, and I guess you are hearing us, even though we have no picture and no return audio, and we will be back, we hope, from San Francisco in just a moment. Now, after the aftermath of everything that occurred, the game was rescheduled, obviously. Um, The rescheduled game was actually postponed for 10 days just to give time for stadium repairs and city infrastructure and telecommunications links to all be restored. The Giants went on to sweep that series. They beat the A's just four games to none, and they won the World Series. We have a few more stories to cover, so don't go anywhere. Especially if you're driving. (laughs) You don't want to do that. I'll be right back to talk about some more interesting games right after the seventh inning stretch. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. And welcome back, everybody. So, for our final two events, we are going to jump ahead to the 21st century. So hop in the time machine and go back with me to Baltimore, the great city of Baltimore. It's 2003, and the New York Yankees are in town. They traveled to Camden Yards to play the Orioles. Now, leading up to this game, every single forecast warned that the path of Hurricane Isabel was going to come right through Baltimore. In fact, every school, government building, and pretty much every business closed down early as the hurricane got closer. So that day, you were looking at pretty much a ghost town as it was. But no, no. Baseball was going to play that day, and the game was scheduled to proceed. I I mean, I guess it was the final game of the series between the two teams for the season, and I guess the Orioles didn't want to worry about scheduling a makeup. But uh, they did take one step, I guess, which was, you know, didn't really do anything in the long run. The game was originally scheduled for 7 o'clock at night, and they moved it up to an afternoon start to try and beat out the worst of the incoming storm. So here you have the Orioles and the Yankees. They are playing as a hurricane is bearing down on them in Camden Yards. And as the game progressed, the rain started, obviously, as hurricanes do, started to get steadier and steadier. And it got worse and worse. And the wind started picking up and it got as fast as 35 miles an hour by the fifth inning. So you get to the fifth inning of the game, and both teams are like, this is not going to work. And the umpires got together, and they decided, you know, we've played five innings. That makes it official. We just need to end the game. But there was only one problem, and the game was tied at one. So they had to make a decision, and they decided to just call the game. And it was a tie, a one-to-one tie between the Orioles and New York. 
the MLB had to make a decision later on, and they decided that they were going to keep the stats intact for the game, but that, you know, it wasn't good to end it on a tie, and they wanted to see the game replayed anyways. So they rescheduled the game for later that month. So after all that, in trying to keep that game on schedule in the midst of a hurricane, they had to make it up anyways. Now, the I guess the funny part, especially being a Red Sox game, a Red Sox fan, excuse me, uh, <laughs> the Yankees were trying to get the heck out of Baltimore as the hurricane was getting worse. So they got to the airport and they all got on the team plane and they had some trouble getting off the runway because of the wind. It got to the point where the Yankees almost had to abandon the plane and take uh, ground transportation out of the city to try and, again, get ahead of the storm that was already upon them. But uh, they decided to give it one more shot, and the plane was finally able to take off, and it escaped in the middle of that storm. Wow. Talk about uh, really chancing things there, New York. Talk about a bumpy ride. So that was an event that occurred in just in 2003, the Hurricane Game. So that brings us to our final event to discuss. I, I guess this isn't a classic natural disaster scenario. I guess you could call it more biblical <laughs> in terms of uh, what occurred. But let's talk about it. And some of you may be familiar with this and know where I'm going anyway. So let's travel to Cleveland. It's 2007 and game two of the American League Division Series. The Yankees are playing at Jacobs Field, and New York had one game one away from home. And that means the Tribe, they're looking to protect their home turf, and they want to even up this series one-to-one in the ALDS. So it's a hot night, uh, unusually hot October night. The first pitch temperature registered at 81 degrees. Ugh, yuck. So the Yankees uh, are up one-to-nothing. They have a one nothing series lead, and they're up one nothing in this game. And they get to the eighth inning. They're holding on to this very slim lead, and they send out rookie Joba Chamberlain, who had been masterful so far this season. They sent him to the mound as the setup man to protect that lead and set up future Hall of Famer Mariano Rivera. But that is when all of a sudden things got uh, unpredictably bad. A swarm of midges descended onto Jacob's field. They got into the dugout. They got into the back of Chamberlain's neck and onto his arms. And you're probably asking yourself, what the heck is a midge? Well, a midge is about the size of a mosquito. Some are bloodsuckers, but many aren't. Uh, There's different, obviously different kinds. Uh, In this game, the midges There were thousands of them just swarmed onto the field and just went all over the players' bodies, especially on Joba. And um, they just swarmed and made it hard to see. And obviously having a bunch of little things land on your skin is more than a bit annoying. Um, Whether they were the blood-sucking kind or not, I couldn't find a definitive report on that, even though I did find a couple articles that said players reported that they got bit um, by some of these bugs during the incident. So uh, that probably brings you to the question in your head, where the heck did these bugs out of nowhere come from? Was it God being a Red Sox fan or God being an Indians fan? Well, (laughs) uh, there is a theory that has um, gained popularity 
in looking at this game. Uh, Joe Torre and Tom Verducci worked together to produce a book in 2009 called The Yankee Years. Haven't read it yet, Uh, but uh, in that book, uh, Verducci and Torre did a little homework, and they stated, uh, quote, uh, this perfect swarm resulted from the cleanup of Lake Erie about 10 years prior. That, combined with the unusual humidity and the game starting at 5.09 p.m., was exactly when it was the 45-minute period after dusk, which represented the Midge's primary party time, end quote. So you've got these bugs just everywhere in his eyes, in his ears, on his neck. They're bothering the batters, too. Everybody's bothered by it. But Chamberlain really struggled with it. So he's got to keep pitching. So he was not able to keep it together. He ended up walking Grady size more to start the inning. And then on the next batter, he threw a wild pitch to advance the runner. Then... The Yankees desperately grasping at something to be able to get their pitcher under control and to uh, fend off this this disaster that is occurring in front of their eyes. They sent out the team trainer to spray Chamberlain with some insect repellent to try and keep them away. The problem was is the insect repellent that they used actually was like a like an attraction to the midges, and even more started getting on Joba as he was trying to pitch. So it made the situation worse. And so, like we said, he walked a guy, he hit the, uh, he threw a wild pitch to advance the runner. He ends up throwing another wild pitch and that brought around the tying run. And now you have a tie game one to one. So he leaves the inning, the Yankees blew their lead and the game continues and Indians pitcher uh oh no i didn't put his first name in last name carmona Ooh, someone leave me a comment on his first name that's that's a research error on my part um took the mound he was working on a complete game he had only let up three hits on one run pitching a gem uh he came to the mound for the indians and pitched masterfully that inning actually struck out alex rodriguez on nine pitches uh to end that inning and you got to ask yourself why did they bother joba so much and not uh carmona and the answer probably may have been that Carmona did a lot of his minor league pitching in Arizona uh, when he was in the farm system for Cleveland. And there are photos of Carmona kind of in different situations, peering over his glove with bugs in his face. And it just seemed to be a normal occurrence for him while he played in the minors. So um, he could have been a little bit more used to the situation than Joba was. But um, he didn't let the bugs bug him. And he ended up completing uh, the game. He pitched a complete game, like I said. Uh, in the 11th inning, the Indians took the lead, and they won the game 2-1. to one. That was it. The Bugs changed history for the New York Yankees that season. And uh, they went on to win the series. So after the game, reporters came up to Derek Jeter, and I think he had the best quote during all the post-game interviews. And he said, uh, quote, just when you think you've seen it all, that's home field advantage, end quote. <laughs> so the midges uh, definitely uh, changed history, the course of history there. Um, Joba Chamberlain, poor Chamberlain. Uh, he's since laughed it off since that, that outing. And he even shared in a later interview that, quote, uh, they had the MLB auction at the end of the year and they sold that can of bug spray. I actually met the kid that bought it in spring training the next year, end quote. Never missed a chance to make a buck there, baseball, huh? Major League Baseball. 
Now, uh, this game obviously had some repercussions that knocked the Yankees out of the playoffs. Uh, manager Joe Torre, who was, you know, manager at the Times, he referred to the bug game as one of his greatest regrets. And after that loss, you know, the Yankees found themselves tied in that series. They weren't out of it yet, but George Steinbrenner uh, decided to open his mouth and said in an interview that Torrey's contract would be uh, voided. It would not be renewed if the Yankees didn't defeat the Indians in that series. And like I said, the Indians went on to win that series. So in the offseason, uh, the Yankees offered Torrey uh, a renewal contract, but it was some lowball uh, contract laden with all these incentives and Tory was uh, more than a little bit hurt. The guy won multiple championships with the Yankees and he turned it down and that marked the end of his time with the Yankees. So, you know, what could have happened if the Yankees had been able to win that game and go on to win that series? Who knows? Who knows? So that is the bug game. And there are some other honorable mention games that I, I want to uh, just share with you in 1988. The Texas Rangers hosted the Toronto Blue Jays. This was an outdoor game, and it's one of the hottest games on record, as both teams played in 109-degree weather. Yes, you heard that right, 109 degrees. It's amazing nobody dropped dead. In 2013, just to show the opposite, uh, the Colorado Rockies were playing their home opener against the Atlanta Braves, and uh, the, the start of game temperature for that game was just 27 degrees. 27 degrees below freezing. Um, stadium staff had to clean snow off the field before the start of the game. So it's right up there with the Toronto game, that's for sure. Uh, wasn't their inaugural game, but certainly a cold one. In 2017, the LA Dodgers were playing the Houston Astros in the World Series, and that game got to 103 degrees, and that was in October. And then lastly, but not leastly, this current season in 2019, we saw the San Diego Padres playing in Los Angeles against the Dodgers when an earthquake that registered 6.4 hit and uh, certainly caused some tremors and some scares, but there was no stadium damage and uh, ended up not affecting the outcome of the game. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Throughout baseball history, we've seen the weather play the role of third team in deciding a game's outcome. And honestly, as climate change continues and weather patterns shift, baseball is more than likely going to see an increase in dealing with weather interfering with their national pastime. How will they respond? Hopefully in a better way than some of the examples we've seen today. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. Again, I appreciate your support. Here's to another year of some fun episodes. Remember to share the podcast with a friend, please. It's always good to pick up new listeners, especially baseball fans and people that just love history in general. And you can help me by leaving a review on the podcast app of your choice. It can be iTunes. It can be Overcast. It can be Stitcher. Whatever your flavor is, just take a moment, leave a review. It doesn't even have to be a written review. Just give me some stars. That helps me get in front of new listeners, and that's always the goal. Ladies and gentlemen, remember there are only two seasons. Winter and baseball. We'll see you soon. <laughs>